All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it all at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he had owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sephora, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, all who had heard about these events. Thanks for that, Aaron. Good morning, my name's Nick and I'm a student minister here at Abbotsford. Please keep your Bibles open to Acts 4.32 to 5.11 on page 1696 of your Bible as we, uh, as we work our way through them this morning. And if you do have any questions as we go along, please uh, jot them down because there will be a time for questions afterwards. Before we begin now, let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, you've given us a, a hard passage here, a passage that that isn't quite what we expect, that, that's a bit perhaps even disturbing to us. Please, as we make our way through, help us to understand. May your spirit be at work in our hearts, shaping and changing us as you intend, so that by these words we have here, we might better understand you and better understand the way that you have called us to love and to serve you as your faithful people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. In just four poetic lines, we have a wonderful summary of the ideal church that we've just read about there at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. I'm sad to say I didn't write them, as I think some of you have already guessed. Can you tell me who did? Yeah, good. It's Imagine by John Lennon. I didn't even have to sing the next line, which I was going to do. I probably saved you something there. Imagine by John Lennon. 
And while he might have sung of no possessions, when John Lennon died in 1980, his estate was worth $250 million. That's over a billion dollars in Australian, in Australian dollars today. That's an awful lot of possessions. John Lennon's words and his actions, you see, they didn't match. But perhaps he's not the only one. <laughs> see what I did there? Politicians make promises at election time so we don't trust them. In the past couple of years, Australia's cricketers and our swimmers have talked a big game about cheating and not taking drugs and being caught cheating and taking drugs. Their reputations have been terribly damaged. And as Christians, whenever we tell others that we believe in the Bible, that we believe its teaching, we are open to the charge of hypocrisy every time we fail to follow it. We all struggle with sin in our lives, and unfortunately, it's one of the biggest barriers in our society to others receiving God's free gift of salvation. Hypocrisy, you see, poisons our credibility, and it has real consequences for God's church. It's what was at stake in our passage here today. Hypocrisy has real consequences for God's church. So this morning, as we work our way through Acts 4.32 to 5.11, we'll take it in three parts. The ideal church, the hypocritical heart, and the necessary judgment. The necessary judgment. Those are my three points this morning. So first, let's look at the ideal church as we've seen it there at the end of chapter 4. And I hope that as we read it, that first sentence struck you as powerfully as it did for me. All the believers were one in heart and mind, or quite literally, one in heart and soul. A brotherhood of man, indeed. Just think on it for a moment. This was a church that was made up of 5,000 men, plus women and children, who had all very recently become Christians. It was a mega church, growing rapidly, with more people coming to faith each day. But all of them were one in heart and soul. Isn't that a wonderful ideal for the church? To be one in heart and soul, completely in agreement... Wouldn't it be nice if we as a church could all agree on everything all of the time? But as it is, I'm afraid, this week even, my wife and I couldn't agree on Christmas lights for our balcony. <laughs> it's true, you saw a laugh. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be so sure of God's will and intention for our church and work together under our leaders to fulfil his mission in this way? But if my wife and I can't agree on Christmas lights, how can even the 50 or so of us here today agree on everything, let alone a church of 5,000? Yet these Christians in Acts 4, they did. And why wouldn't they? They were sitting under the teaching of the apostles who had witnessed Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, who were boldly telling the whole city of Jerusalem how Jesus had come to forgive every wrong in their life, to take the punishment that they deserved in death. How would that feel? 
Or what about in verse 33, where we see there that great grace was upon them? The Holy Spirit, you see, was at work amongst them, powerfully. And even more, as John Lennon put it, there was no need for greed or hunger. Or as it says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Now you just have to remember that the world these people lived in was hard and unjust. Only 10% of the population were wealthy enough to live without concern for their day-to-day survival. The remaining 90%, they were subsistence farmers. One year of drought was enough to put the lives of your entire family at risk. Even in the good years, one in four children, they reckon, died. One in four before they reached their sixth birthday. It was a world of pain and toil for little return where sickness and death and sorrow were the norm. But into this world, we find the church without anyone in need. They didn't need to imagine no possessions because they had everything in common. They had everything in common. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own for real. The believers who had property to spare, as, uh, as Amy so wonderfully showed us, um, the believers who had anything to share, they did. They laid it at the apostles' feet with no strings attached. It wasn't for a particular hobby horse or a favoured missionary or a church building project. It was given to anyone who had need there in verse 35. To the community around them, it would have been an incredible demonstration of God's grace. So we have an impressive description before us of the very first Christian church. But we have to remember that it's just a description. It's not a command. It doesn't say, thou shalt sell thy possessions and have everything in common. There is little to show that other churches in the New Testament lived this way, with everything in common. And just like Daryl told us when he spoke from a very similar passage in Acts 2 a couple of weeks back, there was no obligation in this church in this first church, for anyone to give their property to the apostles. Peter says so plainly later on in our passage in 5.4. But what we see here is a church made up of people so filled with grace, so overwhelmed by Jesus' gift of salvation, that they chose to share everything that they had for the benefit of the church and its witness. Now, is this the kind of community you might like Abbotsford to be? A church we are one in heart and soul, where we sit under good biblical teaching, where there is no one needy among us, and where our generosity can likewise demonstrate God's grace. Is that what you think our church should be like? There have certainly been groups of Christians who have lived this way down through history. It's possible. Just think of the Salvation Army, established in the 1860s to reach the poor of London with soup, soap and salvation. All of it was funded by wealthy Christians who were willing to make it possible. Should our church be like this? It would be really easy to start nodding at the moment, wouldn't it? But before you do, remember John Lennon's words and his wealth. Think about what it might mean for you in practice. 
what it would mean if you're nodding along right now. We're pretty wealthy here in the inner west, aren't we? On average, if you're in the inner west, you'll receive 18% more income into your household than someone anywhere else in Sydney. Most of us are not the needy who would receive much from a church like the one in Acts 4. We're the wealthy who would give. If you could sell property, oh sorry, could you sell property if it meant reaching people with the gospel? Would you? Or maybe you think money isn't so necessary for sharing the good news. After all, even the very poorest people in Sydney are among the 10% most wealthy in the world. But gospel ministry takes time, lots of time. Building relationships, having non-Christians and new Christians into your home for a meal, running things like Christmas at Abbotsford or mainly music each week and inviting people to come, all while investing in your own relationship with God, these take a lot of time. Could you maybe consider working four days a week so you could spend the other day volunteering here? Would you? Could you give up a holiday or a hobby maybe? A week's annual leave each year perhaps to do these things? Would you? If the Acts 4 church is a picture of the ideal church you would like Abbotsford to be, remember that you are a member. And while we can use words very lightly, our actions don't come nearly so easily. Which brings us to chapter 5 and my second point, the hypocritical heart. Now we see at the end of chapter 4 there, don't we, um, Barnabas, who later came to fame as Paul's first missionary partner. And he's held up as an example, as just one of many in that first church who sold property for the benefit of the believers. He's our example of what was going on here. And in chapter 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they want to be next. Clearly they like the way that their church works. They like that there's no one in need among them. They want to contribute. You can see that in what they're offering. They've bought into the vision of the church. And quite possibly, they want to be seen to be contributing as well. To be known as generous people. They want the benefits, just like Barnabas. So they've bought into the vision of the church. But you can see there in verse 2, they've hatched a plan. Because while they like these things, while they want these things, they can't quite bring themselves to play their part, can they? To make themselves worse off for the sake of the church. Maybe it's the security thing. They feel like they can't fully trust that the church would provide for them if ever they found themselves in need. This property might have been their savings for a rainy day. So having sold the piece of property, they kept back part of the money from the sale. They kept it back. Which according to verse 4 would have been fine, except that it's clearly not what they've told everyone. They might have been entitled to, but they weren't entitled to lie. Just like Barnabas, they've laid the proceeds from their property at the apostles' feet, but they've skimmed some off the top. They've committed a fraud. 
Now read with me in verse 4 there, at the end of verse 4, what Peter says to them. He says, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And this is a problem, saying one thing and doing another. It's hypocrisy. It's one of the most common criticisms levelled at Christians today. So it's hardly surprising that it would be the very first sin recorded in the church. Just like Ananias and Sapphira, I'm sure as Christians we all want to have the trappings of our religion. We all want to be known for kindness and generosity. We all want to live in loving community. But we're not always willing to be kind, are we? To be generous, to be loving. And I'm afraid the world notices. Mahatma Gandhi, the famed Indian who led a non-violent campaign to, uh, for independence from British rule, he once said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And well, he could say that because he witnessed, he witnessed Christian missionaries in India wielding their generosity like a weapon, only providing aid or education or health care to those who first converted to Christianity. Converted. And for many years he lived in South Africa, witnessing firsthand the racism that was carried out by, by loving Christians. He spoke of the humiliation that came from kind Christians dismissing his people as heathens and idolaters. Do we do that kind of thing too? Do we claim the titles of loving and generous for ourselves, but then spout hate and judgment? It's unfair to generalise, but I think by and large the LGBTI community might say that we do. Or women who choose to have an abortion might say that Christians do. And perhaps they might have a point. However, Jesus would have met these people. He would have known them. He would have eaten with them. He wouldn't have condoned their actions, and nor should we. But he would have loved them, genuinely. This is how hypocrisy can poison our message outside the church. But it also eats away at us from within. We can no longer trust one another when people say one thing and do another. And as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are more mature than us or those who are our leaders, as we see them saying one thing and doing another, we learn from example. Slowly and gradually in our community, sin becomes okay. We spoil our fellowship and we erode the very teaching that our faith is built on. So hypocrisy is deadly to our witness as a church and our integrity to outsiders. But it's also deadly for our faith and our understanding of the gospel within the church. It discredits us from without and destroys us from within. We all do it. But to be clear... It's not just from us. Please see there in verse 3 that the hypocrisy in us is from Satan. It's one of his schemes to attack the church 
Look more closely at verse 3. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You see, first, as we heard last week in Daryl's sermon, first he attacked from outside the church with persecution. But that only made the church more bold. So now a more insidious attack is going on here. He's attacking the church from within. Ananias' heart was hypocritical, and ours are prone to it as well. It's how Satan works to attack us as a church. And that's why what came next was so necessary for the early church and for us. So to our final point this morning, the necessary judgment. This is where the New Testament gets a bit Old Testament on us. Because as soon as, finish, uh, as Peter finishes accusing Ananias, there in verse 5, Ananias drops dead. And three hours later, when his wife Sapphira arrives, she too is questioned. And as Peter asks her how much the property was sold for, she continues in the lie. She confirms that the amount that they received is what Ananias had laid at the apostles' feet, when that was not actually the case. We don't know how Peter knows that, but clearly God was at work in this situation and he knew. And we can have no doubt that as Sapphira too drops dead, these acts of judgment are from God. Look there in verse 9. Peter accuses both Sapphira and her husband of testing the Spirit of God, and in the very next breath he foretells her death. He doesn't kill her. There was no action taken by Peter. She just falls down and dies. shocking, isn't it? Hasn't Jesus already come? Aren't we in an age of grace? Haven't Peter and all the apostles been preaching the forgiveness of sins for the last three chapters? Why are we seeing instant deadly judgment here? What's going on? How can we understand it? Well, I don't think that it's any coincidence that after each death we read that great fear sees the whole church and all those who heard these events. God might be loving, he might be forgiving, but God hates sin. And he needs his people, especially here in this passage, his newly established church, to understand this. It was necessary for God to take this action because the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, it wasn't just a private sin. It had the potential to discredit and destroy the whole church. And it's not out of character for God to do this either. Throughout the Bible, we see many times that judgment is more severe in times of beginnings. The first recorded sin as Israel entered the promised land was very similar to this sin of Ananias and Sapphira. A man named Achan in Joshua 7 kept back for himself some of the spoils from the defeat of Jericho that were meant to be devoted to God. And in judgment, Israel suffered a humiliating military defeat. 36 soldiers were killed. And when, Ananias, sorry, not Ananias, when Achan was found out, 
he was stoned to death. Or when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, beginning what would lead to the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, the Ark wasn't handled as it should have been. And a man named Uzzah, who was responsible, he was struck down dead like Ananias and Sapphira. But in all three cases, Ananias and Sapphira, Achan and Uzzah, in all three cases, it caused the people to reverently fear God and obey his commands more closely. And I should add, it's not the only time that we see something like this happen in the New Testament either. We see in 1 Corinthians 11 the believers having the Lord's Supper together, but while some overindulged, others went hungry. And Paul says that this is why, and this is his exact words, this is why many within the Corinthian church were weak or ill and some had died. It's another case of seeing death in response to the people's sin. You see, God is not to be trifled with. His commands are not to be taken lightly. We may not see God's judgment so visibly in the church today, but we should not assume that that means he takes sin any less seriously. All of these sins are against God's people, the ones that we've just talked about, against the people of Israel or the church. And this is why his judgment on Ananias and Sapphira had to be so public and strong, especially at the very beginning, because he couldn't jeopardise the institution, the very institution, the very people that he was using and he had planned to use to take his good news into the world. And nor should we jeopardise it with our hypocrisy today. So what are we to do in response? Should we try harder to obey God's command? That would be the easy thing to assume, wouldn't it? And sure, we should. If you want the church to be kind, you must be kind. If you want the church to be generous, you must be generous. If you want the church to be loving, you must be loving. Honestly, genuinely, and scrupulously so. But without the Spirit... We can never really do better. Our hypocritical hearts will always pull us to say the right thing and then push us far away from doing it. In fact, the harder we say we're trying, the more likely our actions are to fall short. Instead, we should remember that we are in an age of grace. Ananias and Sapphira did the wrong thing and they were judged for it. But we have no reason to think they weren't believers. That they didn't receive salvation. They were judged more harshly on this earth for a purpose. But by their judgment, God made the church stronger. Now we too are hypocrites just like them. And we too will be judged as we fail to live up to biblical teaching over and over again. And we will probably damage the church with our hypocrisy. But we are people who have been saved by grace. When we put our trust in Jesus, he takes the punishment we deserve for these sins and all of our sin on his shoulders. And he bears it on our behalf. Ananias and Sapphira may have wanted to appear generous, 
and remain wealthy. But 2 Corinthians 8-9 reminds us that Jesus generously gave up all of his wealth so that through his poverty we might become rich. And that's the thing. When we understand this gift that we've been given, it's not about trying harder. Obedience to God is a joyful response, a joyful response to the forgiveness that we have received. We will want to do everything we can to let others know about it. If we love Jesus, if we fear God, we will never willingly want to disobey. But we need to be on our guard because this is how Satan was at work in Ananias' Ananias's heart to damage the church. So our words and our actions as Christians must match. And they must match for people like John Lennon. Because in the very same song that he so beautifully summed up our picture of the ideal church, he also imagined no heaven. In fact, it's how he started the song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. But as Christians, we know that's not true. Perhaps it was the hypocrisy of the church that led him to believe it, to imagine it, to his eternal loss. So for the sake of the John Lennons of the world, we must heed the warning of Ananias and Sapphira. Examine your heart, because our hypocrisy has real consequences for the church and for its witness to people like him. But in God's grace, we are able to overcome. Let's ask Jesus to help the way, to help us live the way we say as Christians we want to. Let's pray. Lord, what we've read here this morning, what we've heard here this morning is serious. We thank you so much for your grace and your love. We thank you so much for what you have saved us from for the eternal judgment that we have deserved, that we deserve. But as we see the judgment that Adonis and Sapphira received on this earth, Lord, we realise that sin is serious. We realise that sin is serious, Lord, and that perhaps sometimes we take it just a bit too lightly. Lord, please search our hearts. Please reveal to us the ways in which our words and our actions as Christians don't line up. Please show us the times that we fail to be loving, fail to be kind, fail to be generous. And please, Lord, help us to make amends. Please may your spirit be at work within us powerfully, revealing these things to us and giving us the power that we need to make changes in our lives so that our witness to others might honour you and glorify you, might bring people to see the joy with which we, with the joy that we have received from the salvation that we have received. We pray that others might receive this salvation too. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.